I'll be reading from Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where the voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, yes, pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in our sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God. Thanks, Sarah. We've been doing a series on Psalms for the summer. Summer's coming to a close, and we're pivoting into a series beginning next week just for the month of September on evangelism. So evangelism says a lot of things to different people, and we're hoping that as we deal with this, you'll see that the beauty and the opportunity in it maybe destroy some of the barriers from our participation in it. It's the opportunity for us to share good news. So we're going to be unpacking that, and it will culminate in some hopefully very practical ways for you to get attached to what God is doing just locally and even inside of your own heart. How do you articulate the story that God has told in your life and in his word and share that with others as well. So this psalm, Psalm 19, is a bit of a bridge between the close to our summer psalm series and then a focus on evangelism. And then after that, we'll go through the book of 2 Corinthians. We did 1 Corinthians last year, so we thought, why not keep going through Corinthians and we'll, we'll take uh, scripture by scripture and work our way through it. In the meantime, for today, I wonder if any of you have heard of nomophobia. Does anybody know nomophobia? Has anybody heard of this term? Nomophobia. It's new, apparently, because according to Medical Express, this was just a new phenomenon labeled in August of 2023. It is no-mobile phone phobia. Nomophobia. It's actually a phobia that apparently has been diagnosed because people are becoming very anxious when they don't have access to their cell phones. Nomophobia. So you're on the front end of a new phobia, as if we needed another phobia. And it's a little bit ironic, isn't it? Because cell phones, which we all have, give us access to all kinds of information. And that information is 
ironically, something that we feel like is going to reduce our anxiety because you know, but what has it done? It's actually done the opposite, right? We have recognized that even with all this content coming, we're more anxious than ever as a culture. But it's not supposed to be that way, is it? We kind of thought once we got these devices that things would be a little bit better. But statistically speaking, that's not true. And even now, medically speaking, there's a whole new phobia, nomophobia, because you are afraid of missing out on content and information. Now, when we open up the Psalms, and we've just heard Psalm 19 read, it's actually interesting because that's a psalm about information and content as well. But what that psalm suggests is that as you know this information more, it has the opposite effect of your cell phone. It reduces our anxiety. It gives us peace. It's the source of life. And furthermore, that information can be known on the highest level whether or not you have a cell phone plan. It's always been around, and God has shouted out in the very creation that he is there. He's not hidden, and he's accessible by everyone at all times, everywhere. So when we think about this message today that God is not hidden, it really falls neatly into three realities in this text. God is not hidden in creation. He's revealed himself. He's not Hidden, even just like, who are you? It's in his word. And in fact, he's put it into the very fiber of our beings. He's revealed himself in uh, the convictions that we experience through our conscience as well. So I want to look at this, but kind of do it through two viewpoints in terms of application. One is, if you're somebody here this morning and you're not completely on board for whatever reason, that maybe some reasons to consider that that God exists and that he's revealed himself in his word and even is doing it in you. What difference does that make? But the other is, for those of you who are maybe already on board, you might even bear the label Christian, uh, that you're somebody who says, I follow Jesus. What difference does this make for you? So kind of consider both, both of those lenses. But let's start with the first few verses here in verses one through six, where The psalmist says quite clearly, God isn't hidden. He's actually revealed himself in creation very, very clearly. He starts by saying in verse 1, the skies are like a choir singing the praises of God. If you look up in the heavens, they're declaring the glory of God. Now, David is writing this. He was a shepherd. It could be that he was out some night when it was dark and away from the glaring lights of Jerusalem, which wouldn't have been too overwhelming, but he looks out there and he looks at those stars and we know two light years have traveled here and you see the reflection of that star that was represented way beyond that and he says, wow, I look up at the heavens and they're shouting out, there has to be a God. They're declaring, they're screaming out, God exists, and he's majestic, and he's glorious, like a choir singing his praise. And in verses 2 through 4, he argues that every language can understand this music of creation. This choir is singing, and it doesn't need a Microsoft Translator app to understand what's happening. This choir that's singing can be understand, understood by everybody. There's no, there's no uh, lost in translation issues Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Pretty spectacular. Theologians call this general revelation. So just a, a fancy way of saying that God has revealed himself in creation in a general sort of way. You can look around, and the majority report throughout all of history is that human beings made it in his image have said, there's a God. There's somebody who's given structure in order to the universe, and you experience that maybe in sort of an existential way at some points in your life when you feel very small when you're being tossed and torn by waves in an ocean, or when you're just left in awe at a sunset, and you say, wow, the vibrancy of colors or the taste of food that's spectacular or just the vastness of the universe. Go back and listen to Eric speak on Psalm 8. And you don't have the visuals there, but if you remember, he put up pictures of all these Hubble and all these telescopes, and they're seeing all these galaxies, and it says, there we are in their tiny blip. It's just spectacular, the vastness of the universe, and it goes down to the most minute, minuscule things, atoms and quarks. It doesn't matter where you go. There's something spectacular about the universe, and it could be just chance, or perhaps there's somebody who's organized this and who's shouting out in creation, I'm God. And I have taken great care of the finest detail and splashed across the universe my awesome majesty and power. Now, that's what the psalmist would argue. And, and in fact, that's actually what is argued later by Paul. And many of you will be familiar with this in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. When it comes to, is there a God? Then Paul argues, and he wrote half of the New Testament, he argues that you know there's a God. And he goes on to say that we, we start with that knowledge, but we suppress it because if there's a God, that means he's in charge and I'm not. And we like to be in charge, but that's a different message for a different day. For today, just know that the Bible suggests we all realize there is a God. And we can see that as we look around. So we are called then to praise him along with creation in a very unique way. That's what's happening in Verses 4 through 6, as their voice goes out, their words to the ends of the world, it's like they're praising God, and we're called to praise him as well. There's a great part in the New Testament where people are praising Jesus, and he says, if, I, if they don't praise him, the rocks are going to cry out. Uh, creation itself says there's a God, but how articulate is a rock? Did anybody have a pet rock growing up? I mean, did you had those, it was a thing for a little while, and you have your rock, you can paint a face on it too, and say, okay, write a praise song to God, or write a poem, or... Would you talk with me about my emotional problems? They don't say much, but the, rock, the rock's praising God, but you can praise God in a very unique way. You're the crown of his creation. We can sit here today, and I'm, I'm speaking words, and maybe they're being translated, but the words that I speak for those who understand immediately mean something to your thinking about it and considering it and pontificating and wondering. I remember hearing a a story uh, on the radio about how scientists were talking about some monkeys, or I think it was monkeys, about how they're so much more intelligent than we ever, ever thought. 
And what struck me is I'm, I'm thinking, I don't, that may be the case, but monkeys don't have radio shows where they talk about how less intelligent humans are than they thought. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, it's just like, okay, that, granted, perhaps, but we are articulate. Because we've been made his image, Saul made again, the crown of cre his creation. You are unique. And so you can think and process and, be, and reject ideas or embrace ideas because you were made in God's image. And you reflect your creator uniquely in that reality. So we're called to praise him along with creation. And the sun as it makes its course in verses 4 through 6 suggests the order and the structure of creation, like a wedding in the sky. So switching from a choir to a wedding. You know, if you've been a part of wedding, the, the, the groom, as they, they, they show up, there's, there's this order and this structure, and we know what's happening next. It may be different in your culture than maybe in my culture, but there's some traditions, and along with it comes predictability. This is the universe itself. The sun rises from one place and sets, and that's a very predictable reality. So theology used to be called the queen of the sciences, believe it or not. It was considered a science. I don't think that's offered in many science courses at universities today, but the, the premise of it was all the great scientists of the past believed they could do science because there was a God who created structure and predictability. You can sit down and, and measure and gauge things because you have somebody who's given structure if you can't do the scientific method without some sort of predictability. It just falls apart. This is what people of the past have argued, and this is what the psalmist is arguing as well. And that's the broad sweep of creation. It's wordless, but it's speaking out there is a God. So if you're this morning somebody not totally convinced, if you're exploring, from a philosophical standpoint, if you're a philosophical person, you will know that you can't disprove the existence of God. That's very difficult to do. It's, it's, in fact, it's impossible philosophically to disprove the existence of God. So what you end up doing then is you think, well, given all that I see, what's the best explanation for it? And when you look at the order of the universe, just for a consideration, uh, perhaps it is, is the way it is because God actually is who he says he is. Does, so, so examine that evidence. It's, it's very hard for us to do it unbiased. We all have certain way of looking at things, but there, is a, there are some rational considerations for there being a God. Uh, and, and some of the barriers, maybe, that, that you have, and Drew, when he was preaching last week, said, doubt your doubts. You know, if, if you have a doubt, then maybe you can doubt that, too. Take a look at it. One of the, if you're really serious about just exploring a bit more, I'd recommend The Reason for God by Tim Keller, um, a, guy, a guy who was in Manhattan, New York, and wrote to a kind of a skeptical age, but does it in a way that's pretty accessible, and I think is, is a fair treatment of, of where we are now. He actually got invited when he released that to speak at Google. And he went out and Google, and it's, you can find this on YouTube, and it's, it's really interesting because the place is packed. So if you think, ah, eh, that's all old stuff. These are Google people, people. These are the people with the biggest nomophobia in the entire world. And they show up in mass. And the, the, only, the, only, the only thing apparently that had as many people was somebody who was talking about sex. 
had, they had a big showing for that. And then he talks about God, and it's just as big. So people are curious. Why would they even look? Are they there to heckle? No, they want to know. Could this be true? And for those of us maybe who are already on board, when we read a passage like this, the Bible really wants us to see that since God is creator, it means he has the power to be our sustainer too. That he sustains us. That he is for us. That the power, the God who spoke everything into existence is the God who's called you by name. And so on the very most basic of level, when you feel like life is overwhelming, this is a good text to rem remember, but God is the creator of all things. With him, all things are possible. And the, the Psalms, and, and really the Bible, attaches these two things quite a bit. The creation reality of God and the fact that he's our shepherd. There's, he's transcendent, but he draws near to us and, and attaches these two together. We sing about it. We sing Psalm 95. You might not have re realized it. We were continuing to do a psalm search when we sing... You are the Lord over all the earth, the strong, mighty rock of creation. That's from Psalm 95. Listen to how Psalm 95 attaches these two realities together. It says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So here's, a, here's this psalmist saying, Consider God, he created all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's kind of staggering if you think about the Hubble telescope and the image of God just holding all these things in the palm of his hand. And that would be overwhelming because you think he could just crush you. But what does he do? He goes on to say, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Why? For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. We're the flock under his care. So it's not... A God who you fear because he might crush you. It's a God with power who comes near to you. You're, you're a sheep. And you're under his care. You've got the God of the universe drawing you to his side saying, I'm your shepherd. And, and those two things are attached so often throughout scripture. Here's another time it's done in Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. And because that's true, think about the shepherd application here. He will not grow tired or weary. He's not susceptible to COVID. He doesn't need to take some sleep aids or the opposite, monster, to keep him up at night, whatever the case may be. His understanding no one can fathom. So what difference does that make? Well, here he gives strength to the weary. The one who doesn't run out of strength Give strength to his people, the ones who are tired. He increases the power if you're weak in your moment of dependence. He's right there. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So I just want you to see believer, which is a term that maybe it's new to you, but we use that sometimes just to say people who believe that this is true. This, you may be thinking, yes, yeah, somebody needs to know there's a God, but you need to know that God of creation is your shepherd as well. So amazing verses, one through six. God is not hidden. He's revealed himself in creation. Amazing. 
Incredible stuff. Nature tells us about the existence of God, of his glory, his reach, his order, his power, his complexity. And that says a lot, but it's not enough. God grants us clarity in his word about who that God is. And that's what the second part of this psalm is all about. Because we've seen that God is not hidden in creation, but now we learn that actually he's not hidden because he's revealed himself in his word. This next section is all about the law of God, the precepts, the commands of God. And for David, that would be back in the first five books. But we know that as Jesus begins his ministry, he validates all the Old Testament. And then we have new validation up through Revelation. And what we have is the New Testament canon, this Bible. There's a lot of work behind it. But to say this is God's word to us. And this has given us everything we need to know how to live life. It tells us the giant story of creation and the individual story of our own lives, no matter where you are. But you do need this word to give more clarity to who that God is. When I was, you know, a handful of years ago, multiple times with a ministry on the streets of London and primarily working in the South Asian community, we would do some community surveys. So we'd go door to door and knock and say, hey, we're followers of Jesus and very interested in learning more about this community and how the people who were there could just be a blessing to that community. Would you be interested in answering a survey? And like I've said before, if the people were white, they'd be very angry and shut the door on our faces. Anybody from the South Asian culture said, yeah, come on in, even if they're Muslim. Let's talk, let's discuss, have some tea. And one of the questions that we would often ask is, say, uh, say, do you have a God that you worship? And it was always, always yes. And then we'd say, well, can you describe that God? How would you describe your God? And for somebody who's a, a believer then, we get that answer from the Bible, right? How do you describe your God? He's revealed his character to us in, in the word over a long period of time and said, this is who I am, and this is how you stand in relationship to me. And so this psalmist understands the beauty, the dynamic nature, the, the way that God's word has been designed to be our food. This is what, this is, this is what we take in. This gives us guidance and direction. He, he, he talks about the law and the statutes and the precepts and the commands and, and all these things, but there's great benefit to them. There's actually great reward, he says. I mean, most of us like those reward things that we get. You might go to Menards because you get 10% reward on everything you purchase or something like that. There's tremendous reward in taking in God's word. And, and, and what's interesting is that the psalmist switched to El. So you've heard some of you know Elohim. That's a word for God in, in verse 1. To Now when he refers to God, it's Yahweh. It's actually intentionally swift because that's the name of God in covenant relationship with his people. Six times here he says Yahweh. That's our God if we're a believer and the benefit that we derive from reading what he's revealed in his word. Uh, we won't cover all of them, but just to see how the psalmist is saying God's word's not just a source of knowledge about God, but the source really of of life, wisdom, light, and reward, when you take in God's word, it has the effect of reviving the soul. There's a scholar, Alec Mocher, I've referred to him before, great Hebrew scholar, who notes that this is a personal vitality on the deepest level. 
In other words, as you interact with God's word, there is a restorative effect. It's like electrolytes during a triathlon. I've learned, as you guys know, I did an Olympic triathlon last, last week. And I discovered throughout the process something I've known for a long time but became more profoundly obvious to me. I need help from outside to renew energy supplies. And so there's this whole science to it, right? And IDES here and IDES that and all kinds of stuff going on. And you need to put you know, a certain amount of carbohydrates and, and replace salts that you've lost and that kind of thing too. And if you don't do that, you will bonk, as they call it. You will hit a wall, and in the most extreme cases, you will literally just collapse, and you cannot go on any further. So if you're going to be smart about succeeding in there, you learn, how do I replenish what I'm losing along the way? And I think that's a pretty apt picture, too, of what you may not all feel like you're going to do an Olympic triathlon, but you're living life. You might be th feel like you're in the middle of an Olympic triathlon, and you have no training right now, and that's a good picture of how you feel in life right now. It, it might even be in the swim, and you don't know how to swim. You're drowning. So God's word then revives the soul in that kind of way. And another picture might be at this time of year, some of you have plants hanging outside, and they get kind of droopy. And it's amazing if you just water the plant, it springs back to life. Of course, the next day, it's droopy again, too. And that's kind of a picture of our souls. God's word is like the electrolyte for the soul or like the water to our soul. And this isn't the only place to talk about. We did a whole message from Psalm 63 on that reality. The deepest part of our being, how do we get it restored? We need it. We desperately need reviving. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. God's word alone has the capacity to bring life to our barren souls. It's reviving. Verse 7 goes on to say, it makes wise the simple. And a better translation might be, it teaches the teachable. The teachable are taught. You know, God's, God's word is what it is, just has words on a page. But for those who are teachable, those who receive it, it actually teaches you. It actually gives you instruction. It frames the way we think about the big things of life. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? And the very simple things of life as well. It gives us guidance and directions, a way for us to walk. We've been designed to, to become wiser as we learn its teachings. If you're open-minded for instruction, that's where you find it. Along with fear, later, we talk about the fear of the Lord. This made me think of Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom. And it's kind of couched almost like a, uh, like, a, like a parent to a child, maybe a father to a son. Say, son, I'm over 50 years old now. I've learned a couple things. Let me tell you about what they are. And the son says, nah, I'll figure it out on my own, pops. Say, you're a fool, son. You're a fool. Eh, it'll go differently for me. So Proverbs is like, hey, we've got some collective wisdom we're passing on to you. Don't be a fool. Listen to it. God's word's similar. Don't be a fool. Be teachable. And when you do that, of course, it has the effect of reviving the soul as well as making wise the simple. And, and furthermore, we learn that it gives joy to the heart. 
These are straightforward commands with application to daily life that show us how we flourish. We opened up with Psalm 1. You know, those who meditate on God's word, what do you like? You're like a tree planted by streams of water. And your, your roots are deep. And even in a time of drought, your leaf isn't going to wither. Whatever you do prospers. Because your, your, your way of looking at the world is radically different than somebody who isn't embracing that. And it, doesn't, it makes sense because finally it gives light to the eyes. You actually have a vision for the right perspective as you read God's word. Now, Drew preached about this in Psalm 73 last week. Yeah, I, I was very tempted to put up a picture of soccer shoes that he was wearing uh, when, when he slipped. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the message last week. But this perspective that we have is anchored in what God has revealed in his word. It gives light to the eyes. In John chapter 9, you've got a blind man who sees more clearly than everybody else around him. It's not a physical issue. There's, there's an enlightening of the heart as well that gives us a fresh perspective on all of life. And that comes from God's word. So let me just say briefly, if you're somebody who's kind of exploring, try it on for size. You know, tr see, read, taste, apply, it's almost like you put on a set of glasses with a biblical, what we call a biblical worldview. You know, just, does it really do this stuff? You don't know till you try. And when you put that lens on, it may help you understand some of the things around there that have seemed mysterious to you. There's a very fancy term in apologetics, which is defending the faith. Presuppositional apologetics, okay? It's long and confusing. But part of what it means is, you know, you look at the world through a certain set of glasses, put on the biblical worldview, and maybe it will gain, help you gain clarity to what's going on. It, does it explain what you see? And those of us who are believers would say, yes, it does. In fact, better than any other system. Is there absolute clarity? Not always. But you know what? You wouldn't be surprised that would be the case if the Bible story is true, because there is some mystery involved. But there's a lot that's been explained and cleared. And you have a way of looking at the life too, a way of looking at life too. Does it fit with everything you see? And sometimes you can't quite get there. That's why sometimes when it comes to maybe crossing over from exploring to believer, it may just take you saying, I'm willing to believe. Help my unbelief. It takes that little step to say, don't totally understand everything, but I'm going to try it on for size. And no, Doug, are you here, Doug? Have I just described your story? Pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so this, if you're there, try it on for a size. Just a thought. But for those of us maybe who've already embraced this, you call yourself a believer, this, this passage says, drink deeply from God's word and share freely with others. This God who's revealed in creation is revealed in his word. And that's a great benefit to those of us who have experienced that. We could have people come up and share how God's word has done all the things that we've talked about here already. But the compelling notion here is as you've received that too, it's not for your own benefit only. You, you then get to pass that on 
to others as well. So we're talking about evangelism. What does it mean to pass that on? What are the barriers? How do I do it? It's an easy thing to say, but it's a difficult thing to do. But we don't want it to be. And as we lean into the reality of drinking, there is something that happens that shifts us to a desire to be able to translate that in my own sphere of influence. God has revealed himself very clearly. And we have the opportunity to share it. Let me talk first about the, the revelation part of that too. Because what's beautiful in John chapter 1, listen to the creation language here. And the, and the idea of God revealing himself in his word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And we, we learned that that word is Jesus Christ. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. There's a lot of Psalm 19 language happening here. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Do you remember Psalm 19.1? The heavens declare the glory of God. And you know something of that glory. There's a God that's great, but who is he? And he's fully disclosed in the person of Jesus. You don't have to wonder anymore. He shows up in the flesh and says, I am the glory of God. I am the substance of all these things that are pointing out. They're like shadows, but I am the substance of it. And in him is life. He became flesh. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is why Christians love Jesus. He is the full disclosure of God. He's the glory of God walking among us. And because that's true, if you've latched onto that reality, you know all the benefits, and we'll see some in the final, final verses, that come, there, there, there's oftentimes, understandably, a desire for others to know that. There certainly should be. And we kind of wax and wane and go through phases of life. But you can see where if this is really true, and, and you know that people all around the world maybe know there's a God, but they don't know his name is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. They don't know he sent his son, Jesus. They don't know his Holy Spirit can indwell you. It becomes, for so many, the all-compelling motive to share. This is the great one. Of, so we get to one of the great missionary texts, as you call it. And by the way, mission is a sent one, and we're all sent if we're filled with God's Spirit. And you think of that as being something over there, but it's right here as well. How then can they call on the one they have believed, not believed in how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's what evangelism is about. It's good news. It's sharing the good news. And God's word compels us because we know that it discloses who Jesus is. Finally, this last section tells us that God is not hidden because he's revealed himself in our conscience. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless. Innocent of great transgression. Our souls shout out, we need forgiveness. We, something is wrong. I have offended something or someone and I need to make it right. This is a remarkable verse. The psalmist, David, says we actually have faults about which we are completely unaware. We have no idea the things that we've left undone. I don't even know what they are. How can we be forgiven if we don't know what to confess? 
And in verse 13, he realizes there are plenty of times that we actually sin willingly. I mean, there are sins we don't even know about, apparently, but there's a lot of times he says, keep me from willful sins, which assumes sometimes he just sins. It's kind of like Martin Luther. He said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. He had a different meaning behind it, but the idea is, I don't really care. I mean, I'm apathetic about it. So what? Or you're overwhelmed with all the obedience stuff and you don't, you're just tired. Forget about it. He's at least got the sensitivity to say, don't let them rule over me. But man, we're a mess. God's created himself. He's revealed who, in his word how we're supposed to live and we can't measure up to it. We're, we're just a disaster. We're walking disasters. And, and, and we know why. I mean, the, the Bible view of it is because sin entered the world, all the brokenness is inherited in our very nature. We want to maybe be blameless. And there are some of you who are like really want to walk in God's ways and constantly seeing how you fall short of that. So what hope is there? What possibility is there for us to be made right? Can he really be blameless? Can he ever sense relief from the wrong he has done? This is David writing this. And for those of us in the church, maybe we know the story. He was an adulterer. He stole somebody else's wife. He took advantage of his power and he used it for personal gain and pleasure. In fact, he was complicit in murder. He, he knew what he was doing. He knew how to get her husband to the front line so he would have an accident and not return. So he had access to the woman he wanted. That's disgusting. Do you think that if Mrs. Tan had him apply for the nursery, she'd have a second thought about it? Any sins? Adultery, murder. Have fun with our kids. We treat too lightly the gravity of sin here. And the man who's writing it, realizing this is serious stuff. No wonder he's weighed down by guilt and shame. And here's that voice again and again. You are a failure. You're supposed to lead God's people and they treat you like a king, but you know the real story, don't you? You know, somebody came to him and said that to him. You're a giant fake. You're hiding all this stuff. But you can't hide before God because he sees absolutely everything. And you're on the hook for your sin. And no wonder he writes in Psalm 51 where he was confronted and then he writes a song about it afterwards. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, his covenant love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Does David deserve that? No. Nah. Does he get it? Is he really cleansed from his sin? Does God blot out his transgression and no longer hold him accountable? Can anybody really know that they're forgiven like this? And actually, there's a lot of question marks until Jesus shows up and he tries to turn those question marks into an exclamation point. And he says on the cross, it is finished. It's done. I've taken care of it. Your sins have been washed away. No more guilt. No more shame. No more dishonor. In me you have freedom. You have life. You have light. 
It's not because of what you did. It's because of what I've done. And you see, when we understand that, there can be real freedom. Your conscience then that's been convicting you and driving you to the cross is not going to forgive you, but Christ's blood can. Because he says it's finished. It's done. That's the, that's the basic gospel. The great transaction. The most unjust thing in the world. Christ bearing our sins. And see, if we latch on to that, then we'll have this kind of corresponding response. There is, there is an actual existential reality to knowing you've been forgiven. And it's usually in keeping with how much you know you've sinned. Those who know they've sinned much know how much they've been forgiven. So if you don't feel much about God's forgiveness, you probably haven't really grasped your sin. And let me offer a, a scary prayer to you. God, show me my sin. Try it. See what happens. And when you're undone, don't rely on your own strength. Call it to Christ. Because he's, good, he's, he's sufficient for it. That's the very reason that he came. And see, as we understand that reality, then not only are we set free, but we have the desire to share it with others. We just do. We may not know how, but when you latch onto that, then it becomes in the fabric of your being. God, how can I give this away to others? You know, there's things that we might call an existential crisis. It might be one of the greatest gifts God ever gives you. And there's crossover then between the exploring and the believer here. When we come to a point of recognizing we desperately need something beyond ourselves. And we have them. He's offered in the person of Christ. Maybe for the first time for you, okay, I get that. But then a repeated reality for us too. Just like it was for David. I need you again and again and again. Keep me from these sins. I want to be blameless. And, and listen to the appeal he has in verse 14. This is the state of my heart. I want the words of my mouth, the things that I say, and the meditation of heart, what I think about, to be pleasing to you. I have a new thing I'm living for. It's my rock and my redeemer. Creation shouting to all places, all times there's a God. There's a universal statement as well. When John sees Jesus coming toward him for the first time. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some cultures are driven by shame. Some cultures are driven by fear. Some are driven by, by guilt. That's mostly a Western reality. Each of them is addressed when Christ comes. Christ restores our honor. Christ drives away our fears. Christ sets us free from the burden and the heaviness of what I have done wrong. And then he sets us on a new path with renewed vision, renewed hope, renewed perspective, renewed purpose. That what our mouths speak of is the shepherd of creation. What our hearts dwell on is that which is pleasing to him. And the foundation of our lives is not on shifting sand, but the sure word of our rock and the forgiving love of our redeemer. That's awesome! And so when you read Psalm 19, hopefully all that is coming home to bear. And I, my prayer is, and too, it becomes a really fitting transition for us as a church to say, what does it look like? It's really exciting what we're going to do, I, I, I think, in the weeks ahead, because we're going to be looking at um, how we share this faith with conviction, how we share it independence, and how we share it with intentionality. And it's not just me. We'll have some Redeemer members sharing about what that means and how they've done it, and how they're working it out right now where we live. It's not just out there, it's right here too. So I'm, I'm excited 
about, about that too. And then also the Saturday seminar, we have training that we're going to go through that's really practical and, and helpful about what that all looks like. So I, I hope you'll be praying not only for that, but that this final verse is reflective of, of what you desire as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray.